Welcome to the Athletes Record, where athletes share an honest account of the highs and lows in their sporting life, the things that matter most to them, and their hopes for the future. This podcast is brought to you in association with Gym Plus Coffee, an athleisure brand and community of people with a passion to make life richer. To see their full range, visit gympluscoffee.com. In this episode, we hear from Connor Nyland on his tough journey to competing among the elite in tennis, including an appearance at the 2011 Wimbledon and US Open Championships. Tennis began for me, um, you know, from, from, from the time I could walk, I suppose I had a, a racket in my hand. I was the youngest of, uh, of four children um, and uh, all my older siblings played. Uh, my mum had played growing up came from a from a family that all played sort of the national tournaments growing up around Ireland and uh, with dad's work we moved to England for a few years so I was actually born in Birmingham um, and uh, we lived across the road from a great tennis club called Edgebaston Priory which hold, hosts uh, you know a main tour WTA warm-up event for Wimbledon um, even to this day so it's got sort of 20 odd courts and indoor courts and 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 so that was an amazing place for us and that's sort of where it started for my sister Gina who's, who's the eldest um, and she she got really into it and ended up getting to the final of the British Nationals under 12 so she was I suppose on her way to being a an elite tennis player uh, and when I was sort of two and three so there was tennis rackets lying around the house and my brother Ross one of the best players in his age group sort of under 10 in England I know that sounds like very very young but you do have rankings in tennis at that age so he was kind of playing against Tim Henman and these guys in sort of national competitions at that age there was yeah as I say there was always a racket and the ball around so when my when my sister was playing tennis with my uh, my mum and dad uh, I'd be at the back of the course you know trying to whack a ball off the ground or something so um, yeah it started that way so I don't sort of have a first memory of of being introduced to tennis or being brought down to a tennis club and sort of introduced to a coach and saying well this is how you hold the racket it was sort of implicit in my life almost and then when I was three and um, my dad got a got a job back in a back in the regional hospital in Limerick and um, he's a doctor and uh, and took that post so when I was three years and one month we moved to Limerick um, and uh, we we built a court or my dad built a court in the back garden an artificial grass court um, so while we weren't across the road from a from an amazing tennis club we still had a the great privilege of having a tennis court at home and obviously I had people to practice with my brothers and sisters and then my parents were were able to hit with us nearly every day so um my dad had been a Gaelic football player had played for Mayo and was in an All-Ireland semi-final but but had never played tennis um, but he sort of took to it and used to hit with us on the weekends and give us loads of sort of advice and and had a real knack for the technique of tennis even though he hadn't played it um, so from the age of sort of seven and eight, I'd play with my mum after school for sort of half an hour, you know, in the winter before the before the sun went down, I'd, I'd go and hit for half an hour, 45 minutes. Then on the Saturdays and Sundays, I'd hit with my dad. Um, and then I went to obviously started playing a little bit in Limerick Lawn Tennis Club and, and tournaments then when I was about seven or eight. I was a pretty sophisticated sort of tennis player, even by the age of nine, just based on the, the sort of family I had around me. So yeah, I suppose I was starting to travel around then Ireland, uh, sort of 9, 10, 11, and, 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 uh, and then even I started going to weekend events in England uh, with my mum. There were these things called Adidas Challenge tennis tournaments um, that were set up for 
sort of breast kids, I suppose, in, in Britain, under 12 and under 14. Um, and so from the age of about 10, during the winter when there's not, not very, very few tournaments on in Ireland and there still aren't very many on, we'd go over on a Friday night after, after a week's school, you'd fly to a Coventry or a, you know, a, a, a Glasgow or a Birmingham and go and play um, these mini tournaments, which were two singles matches on a Saturday and two singles matches on a Sunday. And then I'd fly home on a Sunday night ready for school on Monday. I'd play a few of those every every winter, you know, from the age of probably 10 to 14. Um, and it really kept me going in terms of being match tight. And, and that was a problem in Ireland in that all our tournaments virtually are on in the summertime. And we don't really have, like a lot of other countries, a year-round domestic calendar. So it really kept me sharp. And I was competing against the best kids in Britain. Obviously, the depth in Ireland. We had some. We had probably eight to ten really good players in our age group. Um, whereas in England, they probably have 40 or 50 um, of that standard. So it was great for me. Um, but it wasn't sort of a... It was like a normal Friday night where you're putting your feet up and having a pizza and watching a film. I was getting on a flight and going to going to these regional places in England with my mum and my mum was hiring a car when we got to the airport and, you know, trying to figure a way out of the, 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 the airport car park and onto a motorway down to a hotel um, and then getting ready for a tournament. So it's just... It's a little bit of a different um, thing being a tennis player uh, and certainly a tennis player from Ireland. you got to sort of travel and think outside the box a bit more than, say, I don't know, thinking maybe a young 11-year-old, you know, involved in maybe soccer, rugby or Gaelic games here in Ireland where your club is probably five minutes from your house or your school um, and you do your training maybe two or three days a week and you have a match on the weekends and it sort of rolls like that. Whereas with tennis, it's sort of even from nine or 10, it's six days a week and it's it's trying to get, you know, 60 to 100 matches in a year and sometimes you have to travel for it. So it got um, not serious in terms of pressure, but serious in terms of time um, from a pretty early age. Seeking an opportunity to progress to the next level in tennis, Connor's family chose to send him to boarding school at Millfield in England, a school renowned for producing sports stars. But Connor even now questions if it was the right move at the right time. Uh, after I finished my junior cert, I went to boarding school in England um, because I felt we felt like that was another good step up for me. But we didn't take the step to send me to, say, a tennis academy in Spain or Florida, which probably would have been better for my tennis than going to England and, and, and the, probably the step up that I needed. But we felt like that was maybe a step too far at that point. Um, but knowing what I know now, you know, I probably in hindsight, maybe that would have been better for me to go away and just take the plunge and go to a go to a fun of a fully fledged tennis academy as opposed to a, a sort of a sports school. This is what I went to in Millfield in England. So lots of those little moments can make such a big difference to what your final ranking might be when you when you finish a tennis you're just constantly trying to to match to pitch yourself up against the very best in the world from a young age so when i went to millfield it was a, it's a great sports school we've it's produced a lot of high high quality uh, athletes over the years a lot of olympians some great rugby players but in terms of producing tennis players i'm probably the best ranked player out of millfield you know, since maybe the 60s or the 70s. So, you know, if I'd gone to, say, an IMG academy in Balotieri's or a, a big academy in Spain or France where that have kind of consistently produced top-class tennis players, I think I potentially would have learned a lot more at that really important 15 to 18-year-old age. You know, I remember going to a, play, playing um, a tournament in Morocco when I was in my last year 
in Millfield and for whatever reason I hadn't got the the full sign off from whoever I needed to get the sign off from and they had been essentially taken it that I'd taken a leave of absence that sort of hadn't been signed off on. I think I came back to sort of five days detention or something. So whereas it's completely built into your your schedule when you're at those big academies, uh, the tournaments, and you need to be sort of playing 20 weeks a year of tournaments, whereas I was only playing four or five. So as I say, it was better, it was good for me in, fact, in that I was able to leave Limerick in Ireland and get uh, a better level, but just still in hindsight, not quite at the very, very top level of what I needed. When I finished Millfield, I went to, I took a year off uh, and played full time and uh, got to the semi-finals of a couple of the futures events, which is the lowest sort of tier of professional events and got up to 800 in the world um, when I was 19, which is an okay start, but already had my, had a scholarship at Berkeley uh, secured. Um, so I always knew after that first year, I was going to go to take up my US college scholarship. Um, so when I was 19, I headed out to to Berkeley in California, which is about 20 minutes from San Francisco, um, a great part of the world, and spent four and a bit great years there playing college tennis, um, which gave me another nice stepping stone, I suppose, to, uh, to professional tennis. But I suppose I was coming at it sort of the long way around. Already the top Irish junior, once he left school, Connor set about moving up the world rankings, a journey that would dominate the next 12 years of his life. It was at Berkeley University in California that he took his first major step towards competing with the elite. So when I went to went to Berkeley, one of the I suppose there was a few factors that that um, that made it uh, seem a good fit for me. Um, um, obviously, the climate. Um, you're playing outdoor tennis all year round. Um, great academics um, and uh, obviously high quality amazing sports facilities that they have in, in, in U.S. college. It's sort of almost hard to believe sometimes when you get on campus, they have 80,000-seater football stadiums and 15,000-seater basketball stadiums, and it's just, it's an amazing place. A bit like Millfield, but probably another step up in terms of a history of producing Olympians and, and things like that. So a, another great environment. But the other the other two reasons were the Irish Davis Cup captain at the time was Peter Wright, who was the head coach and is still the head coach out there. Um, so that was a really nice link for me. Uh, but then also Wayne Ferreira, who was top 10 in the world, was the volunteer assistant coach there. So when he was um, at home between tournaments, um, he lived about 20 minutes from uh, from Berkeley. His wife was from the area originally. Um, so he would practice with the team. And after about my first year of, of being at Berkeley, he retired. Um, so he was, um, I suppose, at a bit of a loose end for, for a couple of years. Um, and he took me under his wing a little bit and uh, used to used to do a lot of work with me. Um, as I say, he was volunteering his time um, and we used to go and practice for a couple of hours in the middle of the day in between classes um, before my, my afternoon sessions. Um, so I kind of, so as I thought after after about a month of, of arriving at Berkeley that if I wanted to be a professional tennis player, I wasn't going to get my myself ahead of everybody else if I was only just going to be doing the, the college practices that were on between two and four because I thought to myself, well, there's 10 guys on this team. They're all doing two, two and a half hours a day. And then there's 100 other colleges around America all doing the same thing. So I felt I needed to probably get an edge. And that was through through extra work. So I used to try and get a couple of hours in extra every day. And, and then doing that with a guy like Wayne Ferreira, who'd been top 10 in the world, was massive. And then on top of that, he... He really believed in me. Um, he said he said he thought I could be a top 100 player, which was something that I hadn't really heard a lot in my life, maybe from my mum and dad. But uh, 
I was probably took that with a pinch of salt. But yeah, Wayne used to um, used to say, "Look, I think you're 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 able to do it." And I would have had a lot of doubts about that. I always knew I was kind of there or thereabouts if I if a lot of things went went well for me. But at the same time, you know, I still still felt a little bit of a ways off. Um, so so he helped massively, and then just the amount of matches I got in college tennis and got a lot of wins, and I got up to three in the NCA singles rankings. And generally, if you're one of the top-ranked college players in America, you're usually, you know, a top 200, at least ATP ranking player. So it gave me a really great barometer of where I was at. So then, when I when I finished at Berkeley, I was able to have the confidence, as opposed to know I could skip the sort of 2,000 in the world ranking all the way down to the 200, hopefully in a couple of years. So I got down relatively quickly um, to sort of the 200. And 200, 250 in the world level. And then eventually I pushed on to 129 was my highest, but I, I got the chance to to play main draw ATP events and a couple of Grand Slams. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, Wayne was uh, was a great help. If you look at, a, I'd say, a rugby player or a hurler, you know, a lot of those guys can maybe look on the walls of their school uh, and they can see, you know, Connor Murray now, who's captain of the Lions. So if somebody from his school is is the is the scrum half on the junior cup team, he can look look up and he can see a really legitimate pathway if he does a lot of the right things to that level. Or if somebody is at um, Kieran's in Kilkenny and looks at a a great Kilkenny hurler who's won with one multiple All Irelands, he again he can say, well, look at if I can if I can get on the team and if I can be one of the best players over the last couple of years and have a chance of being on the panel and getting there. But whereas, again, going back to me, it was a little bit more, I had to really look a lot further afield um, very early. Um, and then when you're in Ireland, there's not a lot of players and coaches who've sort of been there and done that and uh, well, virtually nobody. I used to have great role models and guys like Owen Casey and Scott Barron who were uh, Olympians. Owen, I think, top ranking was 220 in the world. Scott Barron was about 260. Um, so they were great for me in terms of giving me a certain level to try and beat. But again, just in terms of trying to get to a top 100 and a really sustained career in the top 100, we hadn't had that. Um, and I still fell a little bit short, but I got a little bit closer. So I think having that that person who's who's done it, just to give you a steer, as somebody who you are familiar with somebody that you I suppose get to know and, and connect with and they don't feel like you don't feel like they're on a pedestal too much um, seeing that makes such a big difference to, to your belief and belief is it's probably sometimes it's probably a bit overplayed in sport it's not everything you do need the ability ultimately that's the most important thing but belief can sometimes give you that extra kick on the top 250 in the world have an opportunity to reach the majors and make significant forward steps in their career. Over a four-year period, Connor found himself in the qualifying stages before finally breaking through to the biggest stage of them all, Wimbledon, in 2011. In 2011, Wimbledon um, had come around. I'd already won a, won a couple of, I'd won three challenges at that stage. So I'd sort of seen guys that I'd maybe beaten even a couple of times qualifying through. I was ranked higher than a lot of guys who were who were qualifying through. Um, so I really felt, again, that belief that I could do it. But <laughs> I suppose with the belief thing, I had to sometimes I had to go to right to the end to, and peer over the finish line before I really believed. 
So it would have been nice to to accelerate that and have that had that belief right from the start. But for me, it kind of felt like I had to get to that point, maybe just fall short, and then I'd go again. But in Wimbledon, um, twenty eleven, I, I I played. Remember playing my first round match against a French guy, Jocelyn Oana, um, who'd been top sixty in the world probably a year or two before. Really good good player, and actually saved I think four or five match points. In his in my match against him and came through eight six in the third, and sometimes when you save a match point in tennis, you kind of start to feel like it's your destiny a bit to get through, and um, and played uh, my next round against a good Australian player, Greg Jones, and again was down a set and came through in three sets. Pat Rafter, the former um, Aussie player who'd lost the Wimbledon final, was at that match. Actually, he was working with Greg Jones, so it was it was cool for me to have kind of a hero of mine, I suppose, watching. Even though he was on the he was on the other other team, I suppose, but that was that was nice. Um, and then my last round of qualifying was best of five sets. It was against a guy called Nikola Mektic from from Croatia, and my brother lives in London. Has lived in London a long time, and a lot of friends uh, from 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 home in Limerick were there. Um, a few other tennis people as well who were who were based in London came over. So I had a lot of uh, people. Sort of every every round that happened, sort of a few more people came, and then for the last round of qualifying, there was a decent decent crowd there. But we kept on getting rain delays. So I think the match started on Thursday and finished sort of Friday night or Saturday morning funnily enough I can't even remember I had a feeling it was Saturday so it was a obviously the biggest match of my life and it sort of it felt like it was never ending even though I ended up winning in straight sets um, and just I'll never forget trying to to serve out the last game to get through it was um, the ner- most nervous I've ever felt um, in my life and there's sort of a nerves thing that happened with, with, with all tennis players and probably a lot of sportsmen but this was another level and I've heard people even last week I was watching TV and a, a British girl called Katie Swan just qualified for Wimbledon and um, she did an encore interview afterwards and I just was listening to her describing her nerves and I just you could tell it was a nerve that she hadn't experienced before but I, I've, I've been there and it, it's it's a totally different thing because it's sort of a, it's it's legitimately a life-changing event and there's no getting away from it and no matter what sports psychology you've done and whatever tricks you have you've got to try to try to employ them but it's very hard to to not think I'm either going to play in Wimbledon or I'm not based on this match because I was 29 at the time so I knew I was only going to have so many more opportunities so I, I eventually got over uh, the line and won it and I just remember that the, the main feeling was initial feeling was relief but the other big overriding emotion I found with my biggest wins in tennis um, was always just a feeling of peace that it wasn't you're not necessarily jumping around high-fiving people you tend to sort of fall into somebody's arms nearly afterwards and you just have this serenity um, and it only ended up, ends up lasting about two days but um that's the main sort of emotion that I always I always find from my sort of I guess you usually have four or five just of those really top moments in your career no matter who you are and that was sort of the, the overriding feeling for me I was drawn against um, a French player Adrian Manorino in the first round of main draw my brother's a member of Wimbledon and uh, the tournament director actually went to Millfield with the tournament director at the time, Andy Jarrett. So I was kind of half thinking, uh, which is maybe they'll put me on a half, you know, half decent kind of 
course, you know, obviously it was never going to get near number one or centre, but maybe even a court three or something, being the first Irish guy in a long time. Um, but then the schedule came out. I was sort of on court 17, which I think is the, like the, the smallest court at the whole site. But obviously that was uh, that was a minor thing and it wasn't something I, I, I that mattered. I was just so pleased to be to be getting involved and I'd played Manorino in a Futures event a few years before and he was 50 in the world and, and that, but I felt like I, I had a game that could match up reasonably well with him. So from between the Saturday and the Tuesday, there was quite a, quite a bit of media interest and, and, and quite a lot of interviews and, and that, but I was just sort of soaking it up and, and really enjoying it. And I uh, saying I was staying at my, uh, my brother's apartment and my parents came over well, the brother and sister were there, so the entire family, I remember, were there um, the morning of it, sort of together, and you know, going back to when my sister had started as a as a nine year old, you know, it would have been thirty odd years before that. It was sort of a thirty year journey for one of the Nylands to get to Wimbledon, um, and it's just a ridiculously um, hard, long journey for all of us. But it was an amazing uh, thing. So I was excited. I wasn't nervous in the way anyway like the way I was sort of trying to serve out the, the the last round of qualifying but obviously just very keen to to get off to a good start and end up getting off to a good start and being quite comfortable in the rallies and when I walked out on court I got a big cheer there was a lot of Irish flags a lot of Irish jerseys um, and as the match wore on it ended up being four hours the crowd sort of got bigger and bigger and it wasn't just the Irish there. People were hearing the noise that the crowd were making and were coming down to see what was going on. And uh, I ended up being up in the fifth set and, and probably should have, well, should have closed it out really. I was up 4-1 and um, I didn't really get nervous. I I, I, I was trying to um, stay positive and stay aggressive. I think every athlete sort of has their own DNA and I was always a little bit more of a passive tennis player. I was a little bit of a counterpuncher. You know, some players are born just being on the front foot and really aggressive and that's their comfort zone. Most players like say an Andy Murray or a Djokovic or and an Adal are a little bit more a little bit more passive. I know they have a different a different game, but you know, whereas a Federer is more kind of tuned to being on the front foot. So I was a bit more passive. So sometimes if I got ahead in a match I would be a little bit over passive um, and then it would give the other player time on the ball and they would start to get momentum. So I remember telling myself, you know, stay aggressive, stay on the front foot. That's what got you here. And I probably just overcooked it a bit and I lost a couple of quick games and all of a sudden 4-1 became 4-3 and he was he was sort of in lockdown mode and wasn't missing. And before I knew it, I had, I had lost. Um, so... I was going to be playing Roger Federer on this in the second round on centre court if I'd won that. So it was disappointing, very disappointing that I didn't get through. But you know, I could easily not have not have played well or not gotten even the chance to win it. And when I met my family after the match, they were just so positive about the whole day and the whole experience that I, you know, I, I wasn't overly upset and disappointed, even though it still lingers a bit. But I think every professional sports person has a couple of things that they look back on and think oh gee with that one that that's frustrating that that one didn't go my way but you know that that that's that's the way it goes sometimes you know it's something i still think about um and it's something that still um it lingers with me and it'll always be there but you just got to you just got to try and put it in context 
the losses are something that are, are, are extremely important um, to learn how to deal with because if you're on a bit of a roller coaster ride every week emotionally with losses, you're not going to last as a tennis player because the other thing is, as a tennis player, it's it's very black and white. Uh, Connor Nyden lost to X, Y, and Z, and the score is 6-4, 6-4, and it's not like, again, I'm comparing the, the team sports with the individual sports again, but, you know, potentially you could be the man of a match on a team and not win. You know, you might still be able to take something from that. You know, you might get a contract extension because of your performances, but in tennis, if you don't win, you don't get paid. Um, and you don't go up the rankings, you go down. So, um, it can, it can be quite stressful. Um, and I know a lot of tennis players suffer from anxiety. And, you know, you see it with Naomi Osaka, she wins a lot. She wins an awful lot, but, you know, it can be quite difficult emotionally. So that's very important to be able to manage and contextualize, uh, losses in all sports. But, but in individual sports, I would say it's even more important. It was Connor's sister, Gina, that paved the way for him, having been an English champion at underage levels, competing in the 1989 Junior Wimbledon and being the number one Irish female tennis player. Here, she tells us what the experience was like for her and her family as Connor competed in Wimbledon in 2011. Very emotional, to be honest with you. Um, I actually... No, not so much the day itself when he played in the main, in the main draw, but actually the quali- when, he, when he qualified. So that last qualifying match, I wasn't over there. I was at home in Dublin and I was trying to follow the score on a tablet because you couldn't watch it live because it wasn't on TV. So I was literally watching like the points ticking over um, and it was a really tight match. I can't remember. It was over a couple of days, I think. And I just remember when he won that last point, I just, I cried the emotion of it. I was just so happy for him and so happy for my mum and dad. And it was like the culmination of, as Connor said, the thing, you know, thing, 30 years of effort from our family to get somebody to that level. So him actually qualifying for me was the, was the big event. I know obviously I, I flew over then. Uh, I think it was the Tuesday for the actual, the match itself. And I just, I was so happy that he'd made it there. I didn't, anything else was a bonus after that. And then the fact that he had such an amazing match on the day, you know, you know, it was a, a spectacle. Well, he wasn't, didn't go out there and was, you know, thrashed by some guy, but he actually, it made it kind of an event out of it the atmosphere around the court. I actually didn't even, obviously it would have been great if he'd won, but that, that wasn't the kind of point for, for us. He'd made it there and he, and he, you know, and he, and he gave a good display. Um, and, you know, I was just thrilled. I mean, I, I could put it up there with nearly, I mean, my marriage and the birth of my children and Connor's Wimbledon uh, escapade is, is definitely next after that. <laughs> you know, it surpasses any of my own achievements or anything like that. I just was so happy for him and happy, you know, for my parents, for, you know, everything that they had done for us that that had happened. And, and I'm so relieved, you know, that our dad died in 2013. I'm so relieved that he got to see that. Um, you know, that was a huge thing uh, for us. And, and I'm so happy that he, that he could do that and, uh, and, and see the culmination of all the effort. And obviously Connor's effort as well. He had put massive time and, and energy into it. So it was, you know, I felt like we'd all contributed along the way um, to, to get to that moment. Um, and then obviously when he qualified for, for the US Open after that, that was like the icing on the cake. But obviously Wimbledon is the big one. You know, if you talk to the ordinary man in the street in Ireland, Wimbledon's what what they know about. So getting there and seeing the flags and, and the whole atmosphere. And uh, it was like something Wimbledon had never seen before. So, oh no, it was special, fantastic. 
Following his appearances at Wimbledon and the US Open, Connor encountered two very tough years. Struggling with injury, he was forced to retire from the game, all against the backdrop of his dad's illness and eventual passing. Connor had made it to 129 in the world. In retirement, he now reflects on what we need to do in Ireland to break the top 100. While tennis is tough, a transition out of it um, is probably a bit easier than for some of the other sports. So I didn't find it that tough. And obviously with, with my dad, you know, in some ways, I think tennis in some ways helped me deal with, with his, his death as well. I, 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 I think I coped with it well. I miss him hugely, but I was able to, you know, I didn't sort of go off the rails and, and, and I'm able to move on. And, and I believe hopefully we'll, I'll see him again some, somewhere in the next life. So look, at I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. But yeah, it was definitely a really tough couple of years um, and, uh, and, and we miss him a lot. But at the same time, um, I have a, have a young family now. I have two small children and, and a wife and, um, you know, maybe, maybe I'll get them into tennis in the next couple of years. We've struggled to produce um, tennis players. We don't produce good, um, high-quality high junior players. And generally, you know, if you're not producing top class, top 10, top 20 in the world under 18s, generally you're not going to create a pipeline for producing top professionals. So our, our domestic calendar is still um, too much around the summer. and We don't have enough junior international or senior international events. I would love to see a, a WTA or an ATP uh, men's or women's tour event here. I, I know I've I've spoken about it in the past, and and probably people have nearly laughed and said, "Oh, sure, they're they, you know they cost so much money, and you don't make any money off them and that." But I feel like if you know your Belgiums and your you know all these countries around the world and in Europe can can produce sometimes like Switzerland have three or four events, and um, they can all make it happen. Um, I don't see why we can't. And I feel like w- without those really big weeks in our calendar. I don't see how it's going to cut through to the general public and get players who aren't playing the game inspired, but also the more importantly, the juniors who are playing the game and giving them a, some visibility um, as to a what the players look like, but also just inspiring them and seeing them up close. I mean, if I had a, a one week a year, let's say a warm up event for Wimbledon, you know, it just would have been huge for me. You maybe you're, maybe you're around the event. Maybe if you're a good fourteen or fifteen year old, you somehow manage to get a couple of practices with some of the top players. You know, you warm them up for one of their matches, and then when you're eighteen or nineteen, maybe you get a wild card into the qualifying rounds. You're around it. That that to me seems like you know an obvious one. Uh, you know, we can have inter- international events in every other sport. Why not tennis? Um, and then in terms of more easy wins, I suppose just having a more under 12, under 14, under 16, under 18 world ranking events that don't even cost anything in terms of prize money. Um, obviously, they're all amateur events, so they don't cost a huge amount. And that would bring, you know, your, your really good European juniors again on site. And it would act in a similar way. You know, your, 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 your domestic players are getting to see what, what, what the high quality juniors are around Europe are doing. And they won't have to go and travel all the time. Um, so they'd be the they'd be the kind of main things for me. But I think we probably focused a bit the last few years on trying to train players up from a very young age but for me i think you learn from from competing and from tournaments more from than from than from training you obviously need both but i think we've probably under underdone the tournament side uh, for too long in ireland this episode was brought to you in association with gym plus coffee 
proudly designed in Ireland, Gym Plus Coffee was created in 2017 by three friends on a mission to bring high-quality athletic clothing to the nation that was quickly making the Corner Cafe and Ireland's stunning natural landscape the new social hubs. To see their full range, visit gympluscoffee.com. This episode of The Athlete's Record was produced by James Wynn and Richie Kelly of Record Media. Look out for the next episode of The Athlete's Record or subscribe now on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you.